1 John chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 3. Real quick quiz to see how much of you, how many of you have been paying attention over the weeks that we've been going through 1 John. First, uh, or John wrote this epistle for four explicit reasons that he writes. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he writes it that we might be filled with joy. Okay, the first service already was better than that. Okay, let's try again. We'll go on, though. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he writes it that we might be free from sin. That's much better. Oh, yeah, you guys wouldn't be put out by them. All right, chapter 2, verse 26, he writes this that we might be able to fend off deception. And then chapter 5, verse 13. He writes this, that we might have a firm assurance. We started the morning off this morning with the song, Blessed Assurance. Look at verse 13, because we're going to cover that today. This is the reason that he's right. One of the reasons he writes this epistle, and I think one of the particular reasons he's writing these verses to us today. First John chapter five, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know. That you have eternal life. Not that you might hope or kind of, you know, wish that you may know that you have eternal life. And you that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Got an outline for you today. I'm just going to reveal it one letter at a time. It's going to be three W's down the side of your page. So it'll say woo. And I'm not going to give them all three to you. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. This first one. I wanted to do kind of by itself because it's more impressive that way. You ready? First W stands for world domination. (laughs) I figured that should get us on YouTube. Right? A church in Eustis, Florida seeking world domination. Well, that's not exactly what we're talking about. Look look with me at these verses, verses 4 and 5. And you guys read the words overcome the world or overcomes the world. Verse four, for whatever is born of God. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Now, make no mistake. John is talking about some kind of world domination. He's talking about overcoming the world. But exactly what does he mean? Is he saying that we should form a, a military army? Is he talking about political, uh, the political military world? Well, Pilate had that same concern. He said to Jesus, are you a king then? Jesus said, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my subject would fight. But instead, he proceeded to lay down his life, right? He's not calling us to overcome the world by force. So what does he mean? Well, It is interesting that throughout this letter, if you've been paying attention, there is a thread speaking of Jesus return, uh, speaking of the end of time. At least two or three times, at least three times, I should say, John speaks about the Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist who is now in the world, speaking of things that we only see on the world stage in the end times. First, John two, verse 17, a few chapters back, he says, and the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. There's this idea that all of the stuff that you see around you is passing away. But it's possible that you can stand firm even when the world passes away. See, I think primarily that is 
John's focus this morning. Again, to give firm assurance to the believer. It says, look, matter of fact, Second Peter chapter 3, you can write that down and check me out later if you like. But there's coming a time when the elements will melt with fervent heat, it says. The world as we know it will pass away. The earth will pass away and all that will remain is that which is in Jesus. The, the, the world's philosophies, its policies, its principalities, all of it will go down in flames, will be down for the count. But according to this text, it's crazy. If you're a believer, if you belong to Jesus, you'll still be standing. You, you would be called a, a world beater, an overcomer. The, these three times we've seen in, in verse four and five, born, uh, excuse me, overcomes the world, overcome the world, overcomes the world. Notice the words that are right around them that kind of tell you how you can become one who overcomes the world. Verse four, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And how are you born of God? Believing in Jesus. We saw that last Sunday, uh, verse one. Look at verse five. Uh, or excuse me, the end of verse four. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Look at verse five. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. You see, it, it all has to do with whom you put your faith and your trust in. When the world goes down in flames, those who remain will be those who believe Jesus is who he said he is. We will all ultimately, if, if we are believers, we will ultimately overcome the world. And I think he's trying to encourage us here, right? The way that we do that is by simply trusting in the one who, think about it, already overcame the world. That's what he told us in, in John 16. But here's the question maybe you're thinking. And you might want to say a real quick prayer. Um, there's a lot of heady stuff here again today. So we pray, Lord, that uh, he, would, he would be able to come and to speak to us in a way that wouldn't just be our head knowledge, but that we would uh, receive the things that he has for us. So here's my question. Is there an application for today, for here and now? Or is this just encouragement for the future? Let, let me ask you a, a way to make this uh, an application. Are you seeking world domination? Wait, wait. Let me rephrase that. Are you dominating the world or is the world dominating you? Let me rephrase that again. Are you overcoming the world or is the world overcoming you? Now, what do I mean when I say that? What does the world mean in that context? Well, turn back with me to chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. This time you guys read the, the phrase or the word world verse 15 chapter 2 verse 15 do not love the world. or the things in the world. if anyone loves the world. the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. and here's the definition the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world. and the world. is passing away and the lust of it but he who does the will of god abides forever so let me rephrase the question now. If it's defined that way, are you child of God? Are you overcoming the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? Or are they overcoming you? 
if that convicts you and you say, how do I overcome these things? Well, it's interesting because it's the exact same way that you're going to overcome in finality, which is trust, cling to Jesus. Maybe for you, though, today anyway, it's really not about so much the love of the world that's your problem. It's the weight of the world. Maybe you came in today and you've just truly got the weight of the world on your shoulders. It's interesting. Same application. Three different possibilities, but the same application, which is this. Trust him. Give him that weight. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Verse four, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. What he's clearly saying is, look, your final victory is assured. Listen, not because of the fight that's in you, but because of the faith that you have in him. Let me say it a different way. Your victory is assured because you picked the winning side. Right. If you're a believer, if you've given your life to him. You have given your life over to one who has already overcome the world. He said as much. Right. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Jesus has already come, overcome the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He's already conquered sin, sorrow and death. All of it. If you receive him, then that conqueror lives in you. Maybe you might want to take a few verses down that we've seen through the book of First John. First John 3, 9 says, whoever has been born of God does not continually sin for his his seed remains in him and he cannot habitually or continually sin because he has been born of God. First John four, verse four says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. First John two seventeen. we just saw it. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God in him abides forever. All of it. You could circle and you could draw an arrow to John sixteen thirty three, when Jesus said. Be a good cheer. I know you've got tribulation, but I've overcome the world. OK, so he establishes your final destiny. Your final victory is to become a world overcomer. And that's because uh, that the overcomer lives in you. And we've established, I think, that God wants you to experience that now, not in the sweet by and by, but victory now. You do it all by constant contact, by being cultivating Christ in you. OK, so I think we've covered, hopefully, that first W, world domination. Now that we've got that little subject out of the way, let's move on. John correctly identifies that our only hope of victory is in Jesus, right? But here's the thing, guys, which Jesus because remember, one of the things that John is trying to do is fend off deception. There's a bunch of people coming in saying, well, you should follow this Jesus or, or follow this Jesus. Can you be saved just by following any old Jesus? Can you be saved by following the Jesus that the Jehovah's Witnesses follow? Can you be saved by following the Jesus that the Mormons follow? We're going to meet today a guy named Serenthus. He was... One of these Gnostics that we've been learning about had his own particular take, and his was definitely a different Jesus. Does it matter what Jesus 
You believe in? I mean, as long as you say, hey, I believe in Jesus, is that enough or does it matter which one? I mean, not to get too ridiculous here. But if you put your faith and your trust in a guy you met at the YMCA whose name is Jesus, is that good enough? No, it needs to be the same Jesus that we're going to see see clarified here this morning. Which Jesus? Well, John says, look, he's not just a supreme example. He's not just a skilled teacher. And and he's not, as Serenthus would have you to believe, just a spirit filled prophet. No, but the end of verse five, you see it. The Jesus we believe in is the son of God. The very son of God. And John brings to to testify three witnesses that we're going to meet here. Look at verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness or testifies because the spirit is truth. John will this morning, and I think I need you to keep your your uh, thinking caps on here. John's going to call three witnesses to the stand. They might be odd in your in your thinking, but he's going to call water to the stand. He's going to call blood to the stand. And he's going to call the spirit to the stand. Now, before we get into this, I think it's probably important for me to point out again, there's always in every congregation, chances are two different audiences, believers, unbelievers, not to be disrespectful, but saints and ain'ts. That's there's just the two. Okay. If you're a believer, listen, I believe these three witnesses are coming to testify to you, to give you firm assurance, to say, look. If you believe the things that we're saying about this Jesus, you've got the right Jesus. Be be firm in your assurance. Know that you will overcome the world. But listen, if you're an unbeliever, these same witnesses are pleading to you. They're saying, look, this this is real. You need to come to a conclusion about this. They're saying, look, you don't have to wonder where you're going when you die. You can know. Where you're going, if you were to die today, you can know these witnesses are trying to lay it out for you very clearly. Okay. All right. Let's call the first witness to the stand. Um, well, actually, the first two. First two witnesses, water and blood. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, if you're wondering that, you're not alone. Um, one commentary quotes this as the most perplexing passage in this letter and possibly the most perplexing passage in the New Testament. There are all sorts of different theories as to what the water and the blood is. Um, Seems to me the most common and the one that I uh, subscribe to is this one. That the water is speaking of Jesus baptism and the blood speaking of his crucifixion. There are a few other um, ideas and, and some of them have more merit than others. Some folks say that. When he says the water and the blood, he's talking about the water and the blood that came out separate from Jesus side uh, when he when the, the spear went in. The problem I have with that is it says this is he who came by water and blood as though um, that was. It seems to me that's saying uh, when it says came, that word is to take the stage, to take the stage of of uh, of the world, like to to come upon the, the public stage, I should say. And that wouldn't have happened at the end of his ministry. That would have happened at the beginning of his ministry. There's others that say that the water is uh, the amniotic fluid um, at the beginning and the blood would be crucifixion. I I get that. That actually has uh, quite a bit of merit. But this one to me seems to to fit the best. And and I think it fits 
in the reason why he would say this in opposition to Serinthus. All right. I know. Track with me. Here we go. The first witness. Baptism. Let's turn to Matthew chapter three. Most of you are familiar with it. It's a beautiful scene, right? Oh, by the way, when you turn to Matthew three, keep your spot there. Put a bookmark or, or something, piece of paper. Because we're going to come back there uh, toward the end of our message this morning. Matthew 3. You guys know the scene, right? John had just been preaching. John the Baptist been preaching to multitudes saying, Sinners, prepare the way for the Lord. Come, get right with him. Um, be baptized, right? He says, look, there's one coming after me who is so mighty, so far above me that I'm not worthy to, to uh, tie his shoes in our vernacular. He says all these things. Now look at uh, Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John the Baptist at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. When he had been baptized... Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, whenever you see behold, that means, wow, check this out. The heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's how he came upon the stage. From this point on, Jesus' ministry begins three and a half years. Here we have the, the only man in history who had no sin to be uh, baptized of, right? To be cleansed of. But he's submitting to baptism. We see the son submitting so that he can identify with us. But we see God the Spirit too. Do you see that? In verse uh, 16, God the Spirit descending in verse 17, we see God the Father declaring all three of the Godhead, right? Right there. God the Spirit descending, God the Father declaring, God the Son submitting. And this is what begins his earthly ministry. This is what I believe John is referring to when he says he came by water. That's how he entered the stage, right? Here's, here's how all this ties in with this guy named Serenthus. He was one of these guys, had his own particular brand of Gnosticism. Gnostic means knowledge. These guys were those who would come to you and say, hey, uh, you know, the Bible that you have is, is pretty neat, but there's some special hidden stuff that only we know about. If you stick with us, we'll take you a long way. These were Gnostics who basically had extra super uh, duper knowledge, right? And they believed because their uh, presupposition was that all matter was evil. And so therefore, Jesus wasn't really material. He was uh, the, the, the Messiah was was a phantom, if you will. These were the guys, if you remember, that believed that if, if you were walking down the beach with Jesus and look behind you, you would only see your footprints because he would like either hover a few millimeters above the ground or he was just kind of a phantom. Well, Serenthus had his own brand of Gnosticism, I guess. You know, if you're a Gnostic and you've got special knowledge, you can just kind of pick, choose. But his, his thing, his take was this. That at this moment, Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus comes up out of the water and the Spirit of God alights upon him, right? 
He's thinking, Sarintha says, that that is the moment when Jesus became the Messiah. That the spirit of the Messiah, if you will, came upon him. And that it stayed with him for three, three and a half years. He did all these amazing works, raised people from the dead, healed the lame, all this amazing stuff. And that that spirit of the Messiah stayed upon Jesus up until the time of the crucifixion. And that the, the spirit of the Messiah then left. So Sorrentis is saying, look, Jesus was just a man before the baptism. He became the Messiah for three and a half years. And the spirit then jumped ship at the crucifixion. I don't know about you, but I have a philosophical problem with that. I mean, is that how God works? He hijacks your body during the good times. You come to the crucifixion, he's like, good luck with that. I mean, there's a philosophical problem. But more than that, John says, look, I was there. I know the facts. There's a problem with the facts, John says, if you're following me, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. He says, look, this is he who came. He took the stage. He came by water, baptism, and blood. Jesus the Christ. He says, not only by water, but by water and blood. See, apparently, Serenthus, in his brand of Gnosticism, they could just not stand the thought of God on a cross. I mean, it's an ugly thought, isn't it? It is hard to wrap your head around. Could not stand the idea of God on the cross. So they just concocted this phantom Messiah. They wanted, listen, a savior who comes by water. But not one who comes by blood. They wanted a savior who experiences the ceremony, the pomp and the circumstance Matthew chapter 3. But they weren't interested in a Savior who was willing to sacrifice. They wanted a, a Jesus who would receive glory, but not one that would accept the glory. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. I pray that the Lord would give us application out of this kind of heady stuff today. Here, I think, is one. Maybe today you need a reminder that you are not alone. Maybe you feel like you are. Maybe you're a Christian. You, you gave your life to Jesus. You walked down the aisle or you said a prayer. And... On that day, you experienced the Jesus who came by water. Right? The one who is, it's all good stuff. It's all um, ceremony and it's, it's wonderful and it's real, but it's all good stuff. Maybe you remember that day where it was almost like the Spirit of God just, you know, you could almost feel him right on your shoulder or, or you can almost feel him come in you. Maybe you remember that time when it was almost like you could hear the audible voice of God. But maybe now your circumstances are all blood and sweat and tears, not the band, the real thing, blood, sweat and tears. Can I remind you that your savior, your king did not come just by water, but he came by blood. I think the application, if you're looking for it, 
And we're always looking for it, I hope. You have a king who can sympathize. The Bible says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but he was tempted in every single way that you can think of. Again, if you're, if you're like, how am I possibly going to overcome the world? Nobody understands this temptation that I'm facing. Jesus did. He was actually tempted 40 days after 40 days of not eating. I dare say that he gets it. He understands what weakness is, how hard life can be. You're thinking, nobody gets this tribulation that I'm facing. Jesus literally carried the weight, the sin of the world. You are not alone. I am so glad that Serenthus is not right and that John is. That we don't have just a ceremonial Jesus, but we have, forgive me, but it's true, a blood-soaked, sweat-stained, tearful Jesus who has overcome. That's the part you don't want to forget. He has overcome. So we've met the, the two witnesses, right? The blood and the water. But now how about the third? Read with me at the middle of verse 6. He says, And it is the Spirit who bears witness, gives his testimony, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the Father, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now, how many of you have newer translations, uh, New Living Translation, NIV, any other translation besides the King James or the New King James? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, If you were paying attention, you got done a lot sooner than I did. You're like, what's going on there? This is what is the the biblical scholars, people much smarter than me, call the Joannine comma. To make a really long story short, and if you've been with us for a while, you know, I'm not, I try my best not to take rabbit trails, not to, not to go off on a lot of things that aren't in context because God is speaking to us, right? But this we have to deal with. I mean, you don't just, like, where did a verse and a half go, right? Well, we are in, uh, th- those of us who, um, uh, let me put it this way, I preach from the New King James, and normally that's a, a good thing. Um, here's what the scholars believe, uh, this is what the, the, the people, again, who are much smarter than me, this is what they how they tell us that the old King James, when it was translated into the new King James, includes these verses, the end of uh, most of seven and the beginning of eight, but that they should not have been translated into that Bible. According to scholars, um, that these words, the words in question here, which would be, let me, let me point this out for you. Verse seven, for there are three that bear witness Everything following that up until where it says the spirit in verse eight, according to the scholars, those words in question are in no Greek manuscript until the 14th century, except for one uh, 11th century uh, manuscript and one 12th century manuscript, which apparently you can actually see they were added in the margin by hand. Now, before you get too wigged out here, look at verse seven and notice that basically verse 7 is true, right? For, for there are three that bear witness, if, if you were to, to uh, include this, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. You can find all sorts of scriptures that support that. So it's true, but apparently, if we're honest um, with, with the facts, they are not 
inspired. They're, they're true, but they're not inspired. What most people think is that it's probably some scribe trying to help the Lord. Good luck with that, right? Always gets you in trouble. What they're, what they're trying to do is prove the Trinity, right? If we put the word um, Father, word Holy Spirit in there, it'll be uh, case closed. Well, you don't need this verse to prove the Trinity. We, we saw it in Matthew 3, didn't we? Jesus the Son baptized the Holy Spirit and God the Father all right there. You know, with, with the, uh, it's, it's proof right there that that's happening. And there's plenty of other, other scriptures. But this is basically some person, as best we can tell, trying to help the Lord. And God doesn't need our help. I've discovered that. So here's the thing. It seems like it seems as though these verses don't belong. Now, maybe you're here today and you're like, well, that's that's freaky. Maybe that shakes you. Consider this. In the entire New Testament, there are only 50 passages which have any sort of question regarding the reliability of the text. And listen, none of those are the sole foundation for any Christian doctrine or belief. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, 50 passages, that sounds like a lot. Listen, let me put it this way. There is no more than one one thousandth of the text in question. And that's been over thousands of years of transcribing by hand. No more than one one thousandth of it in question. And none of it has to do with doctrine that really that, that is foundational or if it is foundational, it doesn't uh, negate it because there's other places where it could be proved. OK, now you might be thinking, knowing how little I like side trips, why I would spend all this time. Here's why. You need to know that the, this verse is considered dubious by most scholars. And here's why. If a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and they say, but the, the word Trinity is never written in the Bible. Okay, but, but look here, I can show you. First John chapter 5, verse 7 says right here, the, the Father, the Son, the Holy, they're all right there in the same verse. I'm like, ah, right? They've got you. If you put, let me put it this way, don't put all of your theological eggs in this verse. If you do, they'll come back at you scrambled. Okay? All right, enough of that. Here we go. It is the Spirit, so we're going to read it now without those words. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness, the spirit, the water and the blood. And now it makes sense contextually, too, doesn't it? And these three agree as one. Three witnesses, he says. Three witnesses, the spirit, the water, the, the, excuse me, the water, the blood and the spirit. We've already met the two, the first two objective witnesses, the water and the blood. Right. Those were historical events. They actually happened. Then you can prove it if you, as you go back in time. Right. Historical events, the water, the blood. But this third witness, he's a little trickier. He is subjective, the Holy Spirit. He's personal. Where the others are historical, he is personal. Let, let me put it this way. You and I weren't at the baptism or the crucifixion of Jesus, but he was. He's the star witness, if you will. He's the guy who comes in last because he's the star witness. And maybe you're thinking, I don't know, I, I hope. We continually pray that there are unbelievers here, um, that, that you're coming and you're investigating and you're, you're wondering uh, if, if Christianity is true. Maybe you're an unbeliever and you're like, okay, this is all kind of shaky, especially after that last verse, somebody trying to help God. 
But maybe you're thinking, I'm not convinced yet. I mean, two witnesses, water and blood. Yes, they may or may not have been events that happened thousands of years ago. And you're telling me now that there's one witness who speaks to speaks in my ear, whispers in my ear. He's invisible and he's personal, but he's subjective. I mean, how in the world do you expect me to believe all this? Well, look at verse nine. First John chapter five, verse nine. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. John says, look, all the time you believe stuff that you don't see. All the time you you hear testimony from people that you can't prove. The last time you boarded a plane, you received the testimony of the ticketing department, right? Maybe it was unreliable. <laughs> last time that, that you, would you believe them when they said that the tickets were available and you, and you couldn't see them, right? You couldn't see the tickets. You couldn't even see the person on the other end of the phone. You believed them about the flight, uh, the, the time that it would depart and what gate it would depart from. You especially believed the, the, little, the few words on their website that says all of our uh, airplanes are checked by mechanics daily. Right? You received the testimony of the weatherman and you proved it when you took your umbrella out when he said it was going to rain. Let me really blow your mind. How do you really know that George Washington was the first president of the United States? How do you know? Men told you men wrote it down. It's it's testimony delivered down through the ages. Verse nine, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. I, I think we see in these verses, there's a few reasons. Uh, if you want the top three reasons to believe the spirit of God, here's the first one. Look, it's his nature to tell the truth. Look at verse six. It says that he's the spirit of truth. That's what he does. He's the spirit of truth. But number two, his witness is greater than men's. If you if you actually believe what men tell you, why in the world wouldn't you at least consider believing what God is saying? But most of all, and I think this is the most compelling. The third reason to believe the spirit of God. Look at the end of verse nine. Consider the subject matter. He says, for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. Let me put those three concepts together for you this way. Look, God does not lie. He cannot lie. And if he were ever to start lying, it's just a ridiculous thought. God saying, you know, what? I think I'm going to start lying. Take that up. But if he were ever to start lying, you think that he would choose the subject of his son? The most precious thing in all of history and all of the world to him. This is serious stuff and we're going to see this. This is why, you know, people say, well, how could God possibly send anyone to hell? Well, first of all, God doesn't send them. They choose to go. But second, when you consider what God has done and that he's pouring his heart out over and over again in the scriptures and in services like this, saying, this is my son. It's it's our decision. Okay, look at um, well, we, we have gone over the the first W is for world domination. How to be a world beater? We saw it's to trust Jesus. Our second W was for the three witnesses, those who point to Jesus. Now we've come to our third W, and it stands for the title of our message. 
when it all comes down to this, who do you trust? I mean, you receive the testimony of men. Will you receive the testimony of God about his son? Look at verse 10. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. And that third witness, again, is the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look, when you believe that third witness comes to live within you. So think about it. That's kind of cool, Christian. You have within you an eyewitness to the blood, the water, the baptism, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Pretty cool stuff. Verse 10, he who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. But look at this. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. Those are a lot of words. Let's read them again. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. If you're an unbeliever here today. You need to understand if, if you're one that that thinks up till now, you've convinced yourself that all roads lead to God and that it doesn't really matter which one you choose. I just pray that you would read this over and over again until you hear what it's saying, which is this. You're calling God a liar. You are calling God a liar. There's quite a dust up in the last few weeks about someone who said you lie, you lie. Right. Imagine. You go to God Almighty and say, you lie. And especially when you say to him, you're lying about the subject that is the most dear to his heart. His son. And the mission that they agreed on. To embark upon for your sake. Turn with me. Hope you kept it to Matthew chapter three. Think about this from God's perspective. Look at verse Matthew 3, verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you believe him? He's pointing to Jesus. He's saying, this is my boy. If you're a dad, you get this, right? I totally, I can't read verse 17 without hearing how I would say it. That's my boy. I'm so proud of him. He's embarking on this rescue mission. He he knows what's ahead of him. And and on the cross, the, the Spirit of God was a witness. But maybe you think, and maybe this was what Serenthus was thinking. Well, there was no voice at the cross. Right. We we know of the voice that came and said, this is my beloved son at the baptism. We know that in the Mount of Transfiguration, but that was a private thing where the father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. But at the cross, there's no voice. Maybe that's what got Serenthus off track. But. Do you remember the earthquake? <laughs> Do you remember that it was almost as though the earth quaked because God was heaving, sobbing as he watched his boy pay the price for your sin? You remember that the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom, not the bottom to the top, 18 inches wide. This veil torn from the top to the bottom. Nobody could reach up there. Do you you really think that God wasn't paying attention or that? 
it wasn't really his boy that was on the cross? See, he let his son experience death that we might have life. Look with me, 1 John 5, 11. And this is the testimony. In other words, I almost see this as God the Father. We're talking about all these witnesses. God the Father says, okay, I'm going to take the stand. This is his testimony. God the Father saying through the third witness, God the Spirit, this is the testimony. This is what he tells you, that God has given a gift. Right. Given that that word is the same that we would say to give a gift. It's it's free of charge, but it's it's offered. God has offered us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And you could very accurately add only his son, because look at verse 12. That's what verse 12 says. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. John says it's really as simple as that. It boils down to that. Eternal life, there's only one way. That is to put your faith and your trust in this son who willingly delivered himself up for your sins. John eight twenty four. Jesus, from his own lips, he testified while he was on this earth. John eight twenty four says, if, if you do not believe that I am. And that was a, a phrase that God the spoke of God, if you not, do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Couldn't be more clear. She says, if you believe in me, you live. If you don't believe in me, if you don't trust me, you don't have life. Verse 12, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Very, very simple. So the witnesses have spoken and now it's up to you. If you're an unbeliever, that's what it's, that's what's going on right now. It's up to you. But here's the thing. If you're a believer, these verses should bring encouragement, should bring assurance to you. Because, look, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, not hope, not wish for, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. If you are a believer, these should bring you firm assurance. You look at the witnesses, the, the water. You believe that the same Jesus, he was the Messiah all along. And it was he came upon the stage as baptism. But he never left. He didn't shirk his responsibility. He actually went through the cross. You believe in the resurrection. You believe all that the Bible says about him. And you not only that, but you trust him. You give your life to him. You can have a firm assurance that you know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to cling to to trust him. Right. And if you're an unbeliever, do you see the hope for you if you're willing to, to take that step? You don't have to hope. How many times do you talk to people who aren't Christians, but they hope they are? They kind of think they are. Hey, do you know where you're headed? Well, I kind of hope it's heaven. I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. There's no reason that anybody in this room needs to feel that way or to, to come to that weak conclusion. You just need to believe the facts, believe in him, believe what God says about his own son. This is my boy and I gave him for you. You give your life to him and not only will you know your destination, but we've just seen you'll be an overcomer of the world. Pretty cool stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for these faithful saints. Lord, again, um, I know sometimes uh, the, the... 
the text or maybe it's the teacher. Maybe it's part of me Lord, uh, that makes it uh, a little bit more heady or than, than others. Lord. Um, but I thank you that you are so able Lord, to speak to your people. Thank you, Lord, that um, not only are you able, but you're willing and you've even promised to do so. You said, Lord, when we have willing hearts and uh, we're willing to, to hear you, or that you will speak to your people because you love us, that it will not return to you void, but it will accomplish its purpose. You said your word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between the soul and the spirit, spirit and the, the joints and the marrow, even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So, Lord, now we come to this place of decision. Or if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that these witnesses would shout at them if, if need be, would make the point, Lord, that they would surrender, Lord, to you. And, Lord, if there's the folks here who are um, lacking assurance or that you'd give it to them, Lord, if there's people who need encouragement, I pray that you would uh, just do that which only you can do. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.